Welcome everybody to History Analyzed. I'm your host, Mark Palmer. This is a podcast which examines historical events and issues. In this episode, we are analyzing the Vietnam War from 1964 until 1973. This is actually the second episode of a two-part series regarding Vietnam. If you have not already done so, I would strongly recommend that you listen to the first episode of this series, which is entitled, How America Stumbled into Vietnam. Let's take a moment to go over the competing military forces that were in conflict from 1964 until 1975, when Vietnam was reunited under the communist government in Hanoi. You might have noticed that I used two different end dates for the war. 1973 is when the war ended for the United States. The agreement on ending the war and restoring peace in Vietnam, otherwise known as the Paris Peace Accords, was signed on January 27, 1973, and all American combat troops were removed from Vietnam by March 29, 1973. But for the people in Vietnam, the war dragged on for another two years until the fall of Saigon on April 30, 1975. Anyway, the combat forces, of course, include the U.S. military. The primary U.S. ally was the South Vietnamese Army, which was known as the ARVN. This was an acronym for A-R-V-N, meaning the Army of the Republic of Vietnam. The Republic of Vietnam was the official name of what everybody simply called South Vietnam. Then there was the PAVN, meaning the People's Army of Vietnam. But Americans usually just called it the North Vietnamese Army or the NVA, and I'm just going to be referring to it as the NVA. Lastly, there were the communist guerrilla fighters in South Vietnam. Their official name was the National Liberation Front, but everybody simply called them the Viet Cong. By the way, President Lyndon Baines Johnson loved going by his initials LBJ, so you will often hear me referring to him by his initials throughout this episode. As I explained in episode one of this series, in August 1964, the U.S. Congress passed the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution, which essentially empowered President Johnson to take whatever military steps he thought were necessary for as long as he thought they were necessary in Southeast Asia. Before we get into what actually occurred during the war, let's explore whether this was a winnable war or not. Could the United States have won this war and secured a lasting peace for a functioning and stable democratic South Vietnam, like the way that South Korea has been an independent and functioning democracy since the early 1950s? The short answer is no. And that's because of the limitations set by the U.S. government and the American public. Some people argue that if the U.S. went all in, to use the poker expression, in Vietnam like it did in World War II, that the war could have been won. That might be true, but it was never realistic. In the last year of World War II, 1945, the U.S. had over 12 million people in the military. The highest number of people in the U.S. military during the Vietnam War totaled about three and a half million men and women. There is no way that the American public would have supported going from around three and a half million to over 12 million people in the military like we had in World War II. Besides the size of the military, there was also a limitation on the weapons to be used. World War II ended with the U.S. dropping atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Japan. During the Vietnam War, 
Use of such weapons was unthinkable. One of the main reasons President Harry Truman fired General Douglas MacArthur in the Korean War was because MacArthur wanted to use atomic bombs against the North Koreans and the Chinese. After World War II, if the United States used atomic weapons again, America would have become a pariah throughout the world. Anyway, when people say that the U.S. could have won the Vietnam War if the U.S. had gone all in, and I'm putting that in quotes, like World War II, that simply was not practical. It's important to keep in mind that wars are never solely military questions. They always involve politics and the will of the people. Given the limitations surrounding the American war effort, the U.S. could not have won the Vietnam War because of the following reasons. Number one, air power alone, meaning an extensive bombing campaign, would never conquer North Vietnam nor stop the supplies to the Viet Cong in South Vietnam. Number two, the U.S. could not invade North Vietnam with ground troops because of the risk of starting World War III with the Chinese and possibly the Soviet Union. Number three, the search and destroy tactics used against the Viet Cong and the NVA were never enough to achieve a tactical victory. Number four, due to the unpopularity of the South Vietnamese government and the fact that the U.S. was not welcomed as liberators but perceived as foreign conquerors, it proved impossible to win the guerrilla war against the Viet Cong. The United States could not win the hearts and minds of the rural population of South Vietnam. And number five, at some point, the American people would no longer support the war. For the same reasons that the British lost the American Revolution, the U.S. lost the Vietnam War. It's because both of those powerful countries, with much greater military resources, lost the will to fight. In a democracy, you cannot win a war when the public is against it. After Lyndon Johnson was elected in his own right in November 1964, he felt that he could now prosecute the war in Vietnam with the U.S. as full participants in a military sense. First up was a bombing campaign called Operation Rolling Thunder. This huge bombing campaign started on March 2, 1965 and continued until 1968. Operation Rolling Thunder was a systematic bombing campaign of North Vietnam. Later, there were other bombing campaigns with very American-sounding names like Operation Linebacker 1 and Operation Linebacker 2. Starting in 1965, the U.S. conducted many bombing campaigns throughout North Vietnam as well as the neighboring countries of Laos and Cambodia, where the North Vietnamese Army and the Viet Cong either had bases or were transporting troops and supplies along a series of paths called the Ho Chi Minh Trail. I'll get into the Ho Chi Minh Trail later on. It is estimated that between 1965 and 1973, the U.S. and its allies dropped somewhere between 7 million to 7.5 million tons of bombs on Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. It's my understanding that a U.S. ton equals around 0.9 metric tons, so that would be about 6.3 to 6.8 metric tons. To put this into perspective, this was well over twice as many as the tons of bombs dropped by the Allies 
on the Axis powers in World War II. So, before we go any further, why didn't a bombing campaign that was so massive win the war? It was not going to be effective against the Viet Cong in South Vietnam. Large-scale bombing campaigns, by definition, are not effective against guerrilla fighters who can conduct hit-and-run tactics and then blend back into the civilian population. The massive bombing raids were successful against targets in North Vietnam and against the Ho Chi Minh Trail. So why didn't this lead to victory? The main reason you usually hear on this issue is that the communists were fanatics. No matter how much you bomb their cities and their homes, they just refused to give up. That is true, but only to a certain extent. I think that people overlook the primary reason, and that's the fact that most of the communist supplies came from China and the Soviet Union. Let's look at World War II. Although bombing alone would not have defeated Germany or Japan, the bombing campaigns against both of those countries made it very difficult for them to continue fighting. No matter how much willpower exists, a country still needs to maintain the means of waging war. The bombing campaigns on Germany and Japan meant that those countries were unable to supply guns, ammunition, planes, tanks, all of the necessary items for war. And even for their vehicles which already existed, the bombing of their fuel supplies meant that planes were grounded, ships and tanks could not move because of a lack of fuel. And besides the materials of war, there are essentials necessary just to sustain life. The military and the population at large need food, drinkable water, medical supplies, shoes, clothing, shelter, and a host of other items just to keep people alive. By the spring of 1945 in Germany and the summer of 1945 in Japan, those two countries had almost reached the breaking points. It was very difficult to put up a viable defense against the attacking armies. Now let's compare this with North Vietnam. The U.S. could destroy every factory and food source in North Vietnam, but it would not push the North Vietnamese to the point of no return. Even if no supplies were being produced by the North Vietnamese themselves, they would continue to be sustained with their military supplies and foodstuffs from China and the Soviet Union. The two big brother nations, as the North Vietnamese sometimes called the USSR and China, supplied the communists with food, oil, vehicles, arms, and ammunition. The point is, the bombing of North Vietnam did not stop the North Vietnamese and Viet Cong from being supplied with all of the necessities for life and warfare. And since the U.S. could not bomb production facilities in the Soviet Union or China without starting World War III and destroying all life on Earth, the communist forces in Vietnam would continue to be well supplied. The common perception is that America did not have any allies in the Vietnam War other than the Arvin, the South Vietnamese Army. Not true. Of course, the primary ally was the Arvin, but most people are unaware that the U.S. had five other allies in this war. The five allied nations were Australia, New Zealand, South Korea, Thailand, and the Philippines. Since the U.S. led the United Nations forces opposing the communist invasion from North Korea into South Korea, it's easy to see why South Korea would be sympathetic to South Vietnam. As for the other countries, 
If you look at a map, you can see why these countries wanted to help the U.S. in Vietnam. I certainly do not wish to diminish the contributions of America's allies in the Vietnam War. But I'm just going to be referring to the U.S. military forces throughout this episode because, number one, makes things easy. And number two, the main emphasis of this episode is why America lost the war. And before I go further, it kills me when I see that people argue that the U.S. did not lose the war in Vietnam. They often argue how the U.S. essentially won every major battle. My answer is, so what? What was the objective? The objective was to defeat the communist insurgency and set up South Vietnam to remain an independent and democratic country like South Korea is today. That did not happen. So, by any reasonable definition, America lost the Vietnam War. And I do not say this to diminish the incredible sacrifice of hundreds of thousands of Americans and their allies who fought in that war. Let's get back to military tactics. If bombing alone could not win the war, then why didn't the U.S. simply invade North Vietnam with overwhelming force? Certainly, the North Vietnamese could not have stopped an American ground invasion of North Vietnam and occupying most of the country. Wouldn't this have ended the war? With North Vietnam defeated, the Viet Cong would have been on their own. Without supplies and help from the North, you would have to think that the Arvin, the South Vietnamese army, would have been able to defeat the Viet Cong. So why didn't the U.S. simply invade North Vietnam and win the war? It was because of China. The border between North Vietnam and China is approximately 800 miles or 1,300 kilometers long. During the Korean War, when the United Nations forces, led by the U.S., rolled back the North Korean Communist Army, it looked like Korea was going to be united under the democratic regime of South Korea. But when the UN forces got close to the Chinese border, overwhelming numbers of Chinese soldiers entered North Korea and the war. That was only 15 years before American ground troops landed in Vietnam in March 1965. American political military advisors feared that a ground invasion of North Vietnam might trigger the Chinese to enter the war on behalf of the North Vietnamese. Getting involved in a land war in Asia is always a dicey proposition, but getting involved in another land war involving China, with its enormous population, could be devastating. The population of China in 1965 was well over 700 million people. Another factor to consider is that China developed its own nuclear weapons in October 1964. So, the American decision makers had the added concerns of a possible nuclear war with the Chinese. This is the primary reason why the war in Vietnam was unwinnable for the U.S. Probably the only way to defeat the NVA and Viet Cong was to actually invade North Vietnam, but that was never considered a viable option because it might have triggered 
World War III with the Chinese. By the way, it always struck me as odd that everybody on both sides of the Iron Curtain seemed to understand that an invasion of ground forces into North Vietnam might trigger China entering the war, but a massive bombing campaign did not seem to carry that risk. The extensive bombing of North Vietnam never caused China to consider entering the war. It's always been unclear to me how the American military and political leaders understood that they could bomb North Vietnam and not worry about Chinese military intervention. If a bombing campaign alone was not going to win the war, and the American ground forces could not invade North Vietnam, what was the best military option available for ground forces? The Americans had to find both the Viet Cong and the NVA. The Viet Cong were phantom fighters. They did not have fixed military bases. They would attack American and Arvin forces, along with South Vietnamese government positions, and then they would melt away into the countryside. And when I say that, I mean that the Viet Cong would often disperse back into the general population. The NVA would invade portions of South Vietnam. They would select a position that was very defensible and had avenues of retreat. The big problem for the U.S. was finding the Viet Cong and the NVA. If you want to fight these guys, you first have to find them. That is why American troops went on search and destroy missions. This meant American troops moving through designated areas and fighting the enemy as they found them. There were a lot of problems with this tactic of search and destroy. These missions were just as the name implies. American forces went out into the jungles and hills of Vietnam searching for the enemy. And then, if they found them, the object was to destroy them, meaning kill them. But it was hard to find the communist forces. U.S. troops would often be searching in the jungle for 30 or more days at a time. The American ground troops faced many problems on search and destroy missions, which I'll now outline. Number one, the Americans were not being welcomed by the rural population. As the U.S. troops moved throughout the countryside, they found that the villagers were either afraid of them or hostile to them. This was not like World War II when the U.S. military liberated towns in Europe and were greeted by enthusiastic locals. The rural population of South Vietnam mostly just wanted to be left alone by both sides. They were trying to eke out a living. They did not want the Viet Cong taking away their food or storing supplies in that particular hamlet for later times, but the villagers also did not want the Americans searching their hamlets for Viet Cong guerrillas or simply Viet Cong supplies. If it was determined, whether rightly or wrongly, that a village was assisting the Viet Cong, the village was often burned. This was not a way to win the hearts and minds of the people. The Viet Cong often attacked American forces from these villages. This would result in the return fire from the Americans into the village, which often destroyed the hamlet. In a fair and just situation, the rural population would blame the Viet Cong for placing them in harm's way by attacking Americans from these villages. And the villagers did blame the Viet Cong, but only slightly. Mostly, these farmers blamed the destruction of their homes on the Americans who destroyed the villages. From the American point of view, it wasn't their fault. It was the Viet Cong that brought the war to that particular location. It seems to me that the main reason that the villagers mostly blamed the Americans was because they were foreigners. These peasant farmers might not have liked 
what the Viet Cong were doing, but at least they were their fellow countrymen. The Americans reminded the South Vietnamese of the French imperial forces, and this led to distrust on behalf of the Americans. The feeling among so many Americans was, hey, we're here to help these people, and they resent us. Supposedly, the Americans were there to save these rural populations from the Viet Cong. Then the Americans would find weapons or food supplies for the Viet Cong stored in these rural hamlets. And I know that the defense of the local farmers was that they had no choice but to cooperate with the Viet Cong because they were afraid of them. That was often true. However, Americans complained that they never received any help from the villagers. The local farmers never told the Americans not to go down a certain pathway because of booby traps or not to march in a certain direction because there was a Viet Cong or NVA ambush there. You can see why the Americans became so disillusioned. Problem number two with the search and destroy method is that it always gave the initiative to the Viet Cong and the NVA. As the Americans were going through the South Vietnamese countryside, the communist forces could decide whether or not to engage in a fight. If they thought it was not in their interests, the Viet Cong or NVA could simply avoid the Americans. But whenever the communists thought that they had the advantage, they would strike. This was especially true regarding the Viet Cong. It is estimated that 90% of all engagements between the U.S. and the Viet Cong were initiated by the Viet Cong. That is a staggering figure. It's a great disadvantage to allow the enemy to always have the power to decide when and where fights would occur. Problem number three with the search and destroy strategy was simply dealing with the terrain. Outside of the cities, much of Vietnam is jungle, and a lot of it is mountainous. This was a very undeveloped country. American forces were not marching down roads. They were often fighting their way through thick jungle with sharp elephant grass. The American soldiers and Marines were literally fighting their way through the dense and hazardous vegetation. And a good portion of the time, they were dealing with harsh weather conditions of over 100 degrees Fahrenheit, or 38 degrees for you Celsius types. And add to those extreme temperatures, 90% humidity readings. And Vietnam is home to many species of very venomous snakes and insects. So without even dealing with the enemy, this was a very harsh environment to simply march through. It could take hours just to advance short distances. And as foreigners, the Americans were not familiar with the terrain, but the communist forces knew the landscape very well. This assisted them in picking the location for battles. And since they were familiar with the area, the Viet Cong and NVA could set up booby traps in places and then avoid those locations. 20% of U.S. casualties were caused by booby traps and mines. In addition to the physical harm, they also caused a lot of mental stress. Imagine the anxiety when you think that just walking might kill you because you might step on a mine or a tripwire while you were looking in all directions, anticipating an attack from concealed enemies. Another thing to consider about the incredible mental strain on American military personnel in Vietnam is the fact that a large percentage of the infantrymen were essentially kids. We're talking about 18, 19, 20-year-olds having to face these horrors. Problem number four with the search and destroy strategy was how to find the enemy. This was especially true regarding the Viet Cong. 
They were not in identifiable uniforms like the NVA. So as Americans came upon any Vietnamese, how could you tell if they were the enemy you're searching for or the people you're trying to protect? Conversely, the Viet Cong did not have this problem at all. The Americans were easy to spot. They were wearing identifiable uniforms. And the vast majority of the Americans were either white or black and stood out among the Asian population. So the communist forces had an easy time determining who their targets were but the Americans were often unsure. For all of the reasons I just outlined, it was incredibly difficult for American ground forces fighting in Vietnam. From 1965 until the beginning of 1968, the Johnson administration was telling the American people that the U.S. was winning in Vietnam. But how could you tell if you were winning or not? In conventional wars, such as World War II, conquering territory was a primary indicator of success. American, British, and Canadian forces landed in Normandy on D-Day and liberated France from the Germans. That was an easy way to determine that the Western allies were winning. But in South Vietnam, there was no conquering of territory. U.S. forces could not garrison the entire country. Conquering certain areas did not really mean anything. A famous example was Hill 875. A lot of places in Vietnam were so inconsequential that they were given nondescript names like Hill 875. In November 1967, the NVA had gone into the central highlands of South Vietnam and were occupying Hill 875 with bunkers and strong defenses. U.S. forces attacked the hill. After five days, the Americans took Hill 875, suffering at least 115 dead and 253 wounded. The NVA lost a lot more dead and wounded, but we do not have the exact figures. The remnants of the NVA forces withdrew. The American military reached the top of Hill 875 on November 23, 1967. Shortly thereafter, the American forces left Hill 875 because it had no real strategic value. It was simply a place to have a battle and to try to kill NVA or Viet Cong soldiers. So if you're not going to hold on to a piece of ground you've paid for with so many lives, how do you keep track of if you're winning or not? The answer was body count. This meant the brutal statistics of how many of the enemy were killed compared to how many Americans were killed. If, in a given battle, the Viet Cong and the NVA lost X number of men, but the Americans only lost half that number, then this was deemed a victory. There was a second component to the body count statistics. It was believed that the Americans and Arvin simply needed to reach the crossover point. The crossover point was defined as the threshold where the NVA and the Viet Cong lost so many soldiers that they could not replace them. This was a true war of attrition. The idea was to kill enough of the enemy so that they could not be replaced. Of course, the crossover point was never reached and nobody ever determined what that threshold was, meaning how many NVA and Viet Cong had to be killed. Now it's time to talk about the Ho Chi Minh Trail. That was not the official name and the North Vietnamese and Viet Cong never used that term. That was the name given by the Americans. The Ho Chi Minh Trail was not a single trail or pathway. It was a series of interconnected routes through the jungles and mountains of Laos and Cambodia. Initially, these were footpaths, but eventually they became actual roads 
from motorized vehicles. The Soviet Union provided trucks, which the North Vietnamese used to move soldiers and supplies down to South Vietnam. Laos and Cambodia were neutral countries in this war, but their neutrality was not respected by the North Vietnamese or the Viet Cong. This proved a dilemma throughout the time that America was involved in the war in Vietnam. On one hand, the U.S. could not give the communists an unimpeded supply route. America had to try to stop the constant adding of soldiers, as well as food and military supplies, to the South. On the other hand, attacks on the Ho Chi Minh Trail in Laos and Cambodia widened the war. So how did America attacked the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Number one, the primary way was bombing and more bombing. The heavy bombing along the Ho Chi Minh Trail would disrupt supplies, but only for a short time. The communists had thousands of people, most of them volunteers, who just worked on repairing the network of roads. Approximately half of those volunteers were women. Number two, Ground operations by American forces were sent into Laos and Cambodia to disrupt the Ho Chi Minh Trail, but these were very limited and brief excursions. Number three, another way to attack the Ho Chi Minh Trail was to make it more exposed. If trees and plants which covered the supply network were removed, then the roads would be easier targets for American aircraft. This meant the use of defoliants. The primary defoliant was known as Agent Orange. It got that name because of the orange rectangle painted on the sides of the giant drums which contained this dangerous chemical. American helicopters would spray Agent Orange over a given area. This killed trees and plants. Large tracts of land in Southeast Asia are still degraded and unproductive to this day from the use of Agent Orange and other defoliants. Agent Orange was not just used along the Ho Chi Minh Trail. U.S. helicopters sprayed Agent Orange throughout lots of locations in South Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos in an effort to stop the Viet Cong and NVA from being concealed. In addition to helicopters, Agent Orange and its related chemicals were deployed with handheld sprayers, which were sometimes attached to backpacks, as well as sprayers mounted on Navy boats, which went up rivers, and Army track vehicles. Agent Orange took its toll on American military personnel as well as the enemy. The U.S. Veterans Administration has long recognized that exposure to Agent Orange and other herbicides during the Vietnam War caused various types of cancer as well as other serious diseases. Another weapon that became infamous in the Vietnam War was napalm. What is napalm? It's a mixture of a gelling agent with a volatile fuel, usually gasoline. It was like explosive jelly. Most people think that napalm was developed for the Vietnam War. Not true. Napalm was invented in 1942, and its first documented military use was in 1944 in World War II. If you read about the firebombing campaigns of World War II, especially by the U.S. against Japan, it was napalm in those incendiary bombs. When an incendiary bomb exploded, it would send napalm in all directions, lighting the whole area on fire. Napalm burns at temperatures over 1,600 degrees Fahrenheit. Over 1,600 degrees. That's over 870 degrees Celsius. And it was sticky. Napalm would adhere to just about everything, including vertical surfaces. 
And napalm would also stick to human beings. In World War II, napalm was used to firebomb cities with incendiary bombs from heavy bombers. In Vietnam, jets would come in low and drop napalm-filled bombs in specific locations where the enemy soldiers were located. There were times when a battle was going on and the Americans called in a napalm strike on the NVA or Viet Cong. Because of this, communist forces tried to conduct their battles in very close proximity to the American positions. If the communists were very close to the American troops, then napalm could not be used without risk of killing the US forces. And it wasn't just napalm that the communists were trying to avoid. If the opposing forces and land battles were very close, then the US could not use its superior artillery or immense air power for fear of killing fellow Americans. While we're talking about military equipment and tactics, let's discuss helicopters. Vietnam was the first war with a heavy use of helicopters. In Korea, helicopters were primarily used to transport wounded soldiers. But in Vietnam, helicopters seemed to be everywhere. They were used in a variety of ways. Number one, to transport troops. Helicopters were used to create an air cavalry. Instead of always having to march everywhere, combat forces were often dropped off off by helicopter for a military engagement. Number two, as gunships. By having the side panels open behind the cockpit, soldiers could operate heavy caliber machine guns. This not only provided a tremendous volume of fire, but it also meant that they could follow up any fleeing enemies and had a tremendous vantage point above the battlefield. As the war progressed, helicopters were developed with more weapons like rockets and grenade launchers. Number three, transportation of wounded personnel. These were larger helicopters than they had in Korea and could carry more people. Although the medical units would have large red crosses painted on the sides of the helicopters, the NVA and Viet Cong did not respect the status of medical units and fired upon these rescue choppers. The men who piloted such helicopters were incredibly brave because they were usually landing in the middle of a firefight. How many troops did the Allies have in Vietnam? At a given time, New Zealand never had more than about 550 troops in Vietnam. Of course, New Zealand is a small country with a population of less than 3 million people in the mid-1960s. Australia had approximately 7,600 soldiers during the peak years of 1967 and 1968. The most the Philippines deployed to Vietnam was around 2,000 in a given year. Thailand had more at stake in the Vietnam War since Thailand is located in Southeast Asia. Laos and Cambodia have Vietnam on the east side of their borders and Thailand on their west side. So the war in Vietnam, which often spilled into Laos and Cambodia, was of great interest to Thailand. At their peak years, Thailand supplied well over 11,000 soldiers to the Vietnam War. The ally that supplied the most was South Korea. In the peak year of 1968, there were approximately 50,000 South Koreans fighting in Vietnam. While so many of America's allies around the world questioned the legitimacy of the war, South Korea saw things very differently since they had just suffered through a war against the communists from North Korea in the 1950s. Before I get to the American troop levels, we need to remember that the vast majority of troops 
were South Vietnamese. The Arvind, the Army of the Republic of Vietnam, meaning South Vietnam, always greatly outnumbered American forces. The Arvind continued to grow throughout the conflict. By the time the U.S. forces were withdrawn in 1973, the Arvind had over 1.1 million troops. Here's an interesting fact. The United States never held any prisoners of war throughout the entire Vietnam conflict. Any prisoners captured by the U.S. forces were turned over to the South Vietnamese. What about the American escalation of forces? When President Kennedy was assassinated in November 1963, there were approximately 16,000 American advisors in South Vietnam. These were military personnel, but they were there to train and advise the Arvin on how to combat the Viet Cong and NVA. In 1964, new President Lyndon Johnson started to increase the numbers of American armed forces. The big increase started in 1965 when ground troops landed in South Vietnam. 1965, there were over 180,000 American troops. 1966, this was greatly increased to over 380,000. In 1967, there were over 485,000. 1968 was a high watermark with over 531,000 American military personnel in Vietnam. After 1968, the numbers would decrease under President Richard Nixon. 1969, there were approximately 475,000 Americans in Vietnam. 1970, the American presence was scaled down to approximately 334,000. In 1971, that number was cut by more than half to roughly 156,000. By 1972, there were only around 24,000. And in 1973, when U.S. combat forces were withdrawn from Vietnam, the number of American military personnel still serving there were approximately 50. Somebody had to guard the U.S. Embassy. In a democracy, you cannot win a war when the public is against it. So Lyndon Johnson tried to keep the American people supporting the Vietnam War. The war seemed to be a stalemate through the end of 1967. But that's not what the Johnson administration was telling the American people. LBJ and his advisors were telling the world that the U.S. was winning the war. They were basing this on body count. Military people were telling Johnson and the Defense Department that the U.S. was getting close to that crossover point where the NVA and Viet Cong would have lost so many troops that they could not be replaced. They could see the light at the end of the tunnel, meaning victory was near. But this wasn't true. And this was demonstrated to the entire world by the Tet Offensive. Although Ho Chi Minh was still alive at that time and was still the face of the communist movement, he had actually been replaced as the head of the government in Hanoi by Lei Zuan. That's spelled L-E space D-U-A-N, but it's pronounced Lei Zuan. Ho Chi Minh and Lei Zuan were both totally committed to the communist cause. The difference was that Ho Chi Minh was more cautious. Lei Zuan was bolder and more aggressive when it came to military tactics. In 1967, Lei Zuan ordered a general offensive throughout all of South Vietnam. It was the judgment of Lei Zuan that if the communists could attack multiple points in the South at the same time, that it would cause a general uprising. He truly believed that most people in South Vietnam 
wanted to be united with North Vietnam and, just as important, wanted to be governed by the communists in Hanoi. So as I describe the Tet Offensive, keep in mind that the goal was to set off a nationwide revolt by the people of South Vietnam against the government of Saigon. Lezuan and his lieutenants selected the date for the general offensive as the first day of the Tet holiday in 1968. Tet is the Lunar New Year based upon the Vietnamese calendar. Tet is by far the biggest holiday in Vietnam. On the night of January 30 to 31, 1968, approximately 70 to 85,000 NVA and Viet Cong soldiers attacked more than 100 cities and towns as well as military targets throughout South Vietnam. The American military, the Arvin, and the South Vietnamese government were all caught unprepared. The fighting was ferocious and would drag on in some locations until mid-March 1968, although the major fighting in Saigon was over fairly quickly. The first phase of the offensive is the one that everybody focuses on, but there was actually a second phase which started in the spring and a third phase of the offensive in the summer of 1968. Both of those phases lasted for several weeks. Militarily, the Tet Offensive was a complete and utter disaster for the communists. The communists were driven back from every city, town, and military target they had attacked. It is estimated that approximately 50,000 NVA and Viet Cong were killed in the Tet Offensive. That's a majority of the communist troops who took part in this general onslaught. The American and South Vietnamese forces combined suffered approximately 2,600 dead and another 10,000 wounded. Although we only have estimates for the communist dead, if it was anywhere around the 50,000 which is estimated, that means that the NVA and Viet Cong suffered approximately 19 times the amount of deaths as suffered by the American military and the Arvin. When an attacking army suffers 19 times the number of dead and fails to take any of the approximately 100 objectives, there is no way to look at this but a complete and absolute military defeat. However, politically, this turned out to be a tremendous victory for the communists. Lei Zuan and the political leaders in Hanoi failed miserably with all of their military objectives. More importantly, they did not achieve their ultimate goal of a general revolt by the South Vietnamese people against the government in Saigon. So how was this a political victory for the communists? Tet was the point of no return for public support in America for the Vietnam War. President Johnson and the U.S. military had been telling the populace that America was winning the war and that the communists were close to final collapse. But starting at the end of January 1968, America and the entire world could see on television that the communists were nowhere close to being conquered. All that the public saw was that the communists were able to simultaneously take aggressive action against every major city and town, as well as important U.S. and Arvin military bases throughout all of South Vietnam. The most dramatic location was the American Embassy in Saigon. Nineteen Viet Cong soldiers entered the U.S. Embassy compound through a hole they'd blown in the outer wall. All of the communists who invaded the embassy were killed. 
But the fact that they could breach the embassy defenses shocked the world. The Tet Offensive convinced a large percentage of Americans that the U.S. could not win the war in Vietnam. This was summed up by Walter Cronkite, who was by far the most important journalist of that time. Cronkite anchored the CBS Evening News, one of the network news broadcasts. Walter Cronkite visited Vietnam in February 1968 during the Tet Offensive. On February 27, 1968, CBS News aired a program entitled Report from Vietnam, Who, What, When, Where, Why. During that show, Cronkite gave his opinion on television that said the war was unwinnable. Cronkite stated that it was only his subjective opinion, but it seems now more certain than ever that the bloody experience of Vietnam is to end in a stalemate. He went on to say, it is increasingly clear to this reporter that the only rational way out then will be to negotiate, not as victors, but as an honorable people who lived up to their pledge to defend democracy and did the best they could. Although so many people in the U.S. and around the world could see that the war would indeed end up as a stalemate and the U.S. could not win, the war would drag on for almost five more years with thousands and thousands more Americans losing their lives. Although the Tet Offensive failed in all of the goals set by Lezuan, it was the true turning point of the war because of its effect on public opinion in the United States. As a result, Lyndon Johnson was finished politically. 1968 was a presidential year. LBJ had planned to run for re-election, but the war was so unpopular that he announced on March 31, 1968, that he would no longer seek re-election. By the time of the Democratic Convention in August, which was held in Chicago, the anti-war movement had lost any faith in the Democratic Party ending the Vietnam War in the near future. Anti-war candidate Bobby Kennedy had been assassinated here in Los Angeles in June. Eugene McCarthy was still running as an anti-war candidate, but it was clear that Hubert Humphrey, the sitting vice president, would get the nomination. And Humphrey was pledging to stay the same course as Lyndon Johnson regarding Vietnam. As a result, thousands of young people went to Chicago to protest at the Democratic National Convention. Chicago Mayor Richard Daley was not going to put up with these young dissidents, so he employed very harsh police tactics against the demonstrators. There were violent clashes between the young anti-war people versus the police. This was all broadcast on nationwide television and around the world. As the protesters were being clubbed by the police, they were chanting, the whole world is watching, the whole world is watching. The discord spilled onto the convention floor. In a memorable moment, Connecticut Senator Abraham Ribicoff promoted his candidate, George McGovern, and took a verbal shot at Chicago Mayor Richard Daley on live television when he said, With George McGovern as President of the United States, we wouldn't have to have Gestapo's tactics in the streets of Chicago. In the general election, Democrat Hubert Humphrey lost a close race to the Republican nominee Richard Nixon. And the race was only close because Humphrey eventually broke with LBJ on Vietnam War policies. In an attempt to salvage his legacy and to possibly help the Democrat candidate Hubert Humphrey win the presidential election of 1968, Johnson tried to end the Vietnam War through peace negotiations in the fall of 1968. Richard Nixon sabotaged those negotiations. 
How did he do that? Through a liaison named Anna Chenault. Who was Anna Chenault? Her late husband was Claire Chenault, who led the Flying Tigers, a volunteer group of American pilots fighting against the Japanese in China during World War II. During the 1968 campaign for the presidency, at a meeting with the South Vietnamese ambassador, Nixon told the ambassador that Anna Chenault was his personal representative to South Vietnam. Nixon told the ambassador that he would relay messages to the ambassador through Anna Chenault. Through Mrs. Chenault, Nixon advised the South Vietnamese government that they should not participate in any peace negotiations in the fall of 1968 because they would get a much better deal once Nixon was elected president. As a result, the government of South Vietnam boycotted any peace negotiations that Lyndon Johnson was trying to arrange with North Vietnam and the Viet Cong. Nixon's shenanigans had been a rumor for years, but now there's evidence that Nixon really did this. There are handwritten personal notes by Bob Halderman, Nixon's future chief of staff. Halderman's October 22, 1968 notes confirm that Nixon was directing Anna Chenault to keep the South Vietnamese from any peace negotiations. Before I go any further, I do not believe that Lyndon Johnson would have been able to end the Vietnam War in 1968, even if Nixon was not interfering. Johnson did not want to be seen as losing the war and would not have accepted the terms eventually reached in 1973. So, I don't think Nixon's meddling in 1968 changed history. However, what Nixon did amounts to treason. At the time, Nixon was a private citizen who was merely running for office. He was sabotaging the foreign policy of the U.S. government during a war. There is a specific federal statute which makes this a crime. The Logan Act of 1799 prevents civilians interfering with negotiations with foreign governments. That statute is still in force and can be found at 18 United States Code, Section 953. Nixon was trying to prolong the war for his own personal gain. Lyndon Johnson knew what Nixon was doing at the time this was happening. If Johnson told the American people what Nixon was doing, this might have swayed enough voters that Hubert Humphrey could have won the presidency in 1968. So why didn't Johnson do this? Well because LBJ had something to hide. The reason Johnson knew what was going on is because LBJ had ordered the tapping of the phones of the South Vietnamese embassy. For Johnson to convince the American people what Nixon was up to, he would have had to explain how he had definitive proof. President Johnson did not want to admit to the public that he was spying on America's allies. During the campaign, Nixon did not say anything specific about how he would handle the Vietnam War. Nixon just vaguely told people that his goal was to achieve peace with honor, whatever that meant. But in the first year of his administration, Nixon admitted to Henry Kissinger that the Vietnam War was unwinnable. Kissinger served as the National Security Advisor and, as of September 1973, Secretary of State under the Nixon administration. Nixon and Kissinger were the two people who decided American policy regarding Vietnam. So, if Nixon and Kissinger believed that the U.S. could not win the war in the first year of his administration, why did it drag on for another three to four years, resulting in up to 21,000 more American deaths? By peace with honor, Nixon and Kissinger meant getting out of Vietnam without the appearance that America lost the war 
and that America was abandoning an ally. So Nixon followed a policy called Vietnamization. This meant preparing the South Vietnamese to take over the fight against the communists without the help of the American military. The idea was to build up the fighting capacity of the Arvin so the U.S. just had to provide supplies and maybe financial aid, but not ground troops. I love the fact that Nixon thought that this was a novel idea. This was essentially the American policy under Eisenhower and Kennedy. Even Lyndon Johnson tried that policy in the first year of his presidency, but by 1965 it became clear to the U.S. military and government that South Vietnam could not stand on its own. But for some reason Nixon thought that he could succeed where the prior American presidents had failed. So Nixon started his policy of Vietnamization in 1969. What else was going on in 1969? On July 20, Apollo 11 landed at Tranquility Base on the moon. Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin became the first humans to walk on the moon. On June 28, New York City police raided a popular gay bar in Greenwich Village called the Stonewall Inn. This led to violent protests known as the Stonewall Uprising that lasted for six days and is widely considered as the beginning of the modern gay civil rights movement in the U.S. Between August 15 and August 18, the most famous musical festival of all time, called Woodstock, occurred in New York State. I find the number of attendees at the Woodstock concert ironic because there were about a half a million people there at the same time there were approximately a half a million Americans in Vietnam. And of significance to today's episode, on September 2, 1969, Ho Chi Minh died in Hanoi. We think he was 79 years old, but nobody's really sure because there are no records regarding his birth. It is believed he died of heart failure. Although he was the figurehead for the communist movement in Vietnam, Ho Chi Minh had not been the actual leader for approximately a decade. Lai Zuan held the title of first secretary of the Central Committee of the Vietnamese Communist Party and had been in charge for years and would continue to be the ruler of North Vietnam after the death of Ho Chi Minh. I'll get back to Nixon's handling of the war in a little bit, but first we need to talk about the draft, also known as conscription. In 1940, more than a year before the U.S. entered World War II, the first peacetime draft in American history was enacted. This was in response to what was going on in the world. World War II was raging in both Europe and Asia. After World War II, the draft was allowed to expire in 1947, but because of the tensions of the Cold War with the Soviet Union, the draft was reinstated in 1948. Between 1964 and 1973, the United States drafted 2.2 million American men into the military. This was out of a pool of 27 million eligible men. Throughout the war years of 1964 to 1973, approximately 25 to 33 percent of the U.S. military forces in combat zones were draftees. You're probably surprised about what a low figure that is. I know I was. I always thought that most of the people serving in Vietnam had been drafted. Young men enlisted in the armed forces during those years for a variety of reasons. Although we don't have statistical data, it appears that most volunteered out of a sense of patriotic duty. During the Vietnam War, the draft was initially conducted very unfairly. If a young man was notified that he had been drafted by Uncle Sam, he reported to his local draft board. The local draft boards were often made up of military veterans. The draft boards granted exemptions and deferments for a variety of reasons. The most common basis for a deferment 
was if a man was a full-time student making adequate progress in essentially any field of study. This meant that a much larger percentage of the poor and minorities were subject to the draft. Another reason why the draft was unfair to minorities was demonstrated by an October 1966 report by the National Advisory Commission on Selective Service. That report showed that only 1.3% of local draft board members were black. This was at a time when blacks made up approximately 11% of the U.S. population. This resulted in blacks being overrepresented in the military. Blacks made up 16.3% of all draftees and 23% of all combat troops in Vietnam in 1967. At first, married men were exempt from being conscripted. But on August 26, 1965, President Johnson signed Executive Order 11241, eliminating the marriage exemption. In an attempt to make conscription more equitable, a draft lottery was instituted. On December 1, 1969, the first draft lottery was held on national television. The lottery went by birthdays. 366 capsules containing birth dates, including February 29, were placed into a large bowl. On television, each capsule was removed from the bowl. The first birthday that was drawn was September 14. This meant that if your birthday was September 14, you were number one on the draft list for 1970. So as the U.S. Army was filling out the draft quotas, they would announce that everybody with a draft number of one through a particular number were being called up for that draft. As part of his Vietnamization program, Nixon was gradually decreasing the number of troops in Vietnam. But that did not satisfy the anti-war movement. Yes, it was better to have less Americans fighting and dying in Vietnam than in previous years, but the people against the war did not want to have any Americans fighting and dying in Southeast Asia. During the Johnson and Nixon presidencies, there were many protests against the war, with rallies in Washington, D.C., New York, and other cities. And it seemed that the biggest demonstrations were on college campuses. Many of the college protests were broken up by force. The most infamous example was at Kent State University in Ohio. On May 4, 1970, members of the Ohio National Guard fired into a crowd of students demonstrating against the war. Four students were killed and another nine were injured. The reason for the protest at Kent State was because of an announcement by President Nixon four days earlier. On April 30, 1970, Nixon announced on TV that the U.S. ground troops had invaded Cambodia to attack bases in Cambodia used by the Viet Cong. This widening of the war into Cambodia triggered demonstrations on college campuses around the country. While we're talking about incidents that sparked outrage from the American public, there were two that were caught in photos that became truly iconic. The first occurred on February 1, 1968. On the second day of the Tet Offensive, a Viet Cong prisoner was shot in the head by the National Police Chief of South Vietnam, Win Nok Lone. This was not in the midst of a battle. The prisoner was handcuffed behind his back. What made the scene so powerful was that a photographer from the Associated Press named Eddie Adams caught the exact moment of the shot to the head. 
You've probably seen that photo. The brutality caught in that photograph made many Americans and other people around the world question whether the U.S. was supporting a just government. There are countless compelling photographs from the Vietnam War, but along with the one I just described, the other one that I think stands out above all the rest was taken on June 8, 1972, outside the village of Trang Bang. The photo shows several children running towards the camera. They are screaming because they were running away from a napalm attack. In the middle, there is a nine-year-old girl who is completely naked. She became famous as Napalm Girl, but her name was actually Phan T. Kim Phuc. It was aircraft from the South Vietnamese Air Force that dropped the napalm bombs on the village because it was controlled by the Viet Cong. The napalm set Phan T. Kim Phuc's clothes on fire. She ripped off her clothes as she was fleeing from the burning village. The photo was taken by Associated Press photographer Nick Utt. Immediately after snapping one of the most famous photographs of the 20th century, Nick Utt put down his equipment and put water on Fuchs' body. Utt got the children into his van and drove them to a hospital. At first, Utt was told that the hospital would not treat the children and he would have to take them to Saigon. Utt convinced the doctors to treat the children by telling them that his photos would be in all of the world's newspapers the next day and that if any of the kids died, these doctors would be in serious trouble. The children survived. As of today, Phan T. Kim Phuc is alive and is a Canadian citizen. Another polarizing incident was the My Lai Massacre. On March 16, 1968, American soldiers were on a mission to clear out the Viet Cong along the central coast of Vietnam. One of the villages there was named My Lai. That's spelled M-Y space L-A-I. The American soldiers in Charlie Company, 1st Battalion, 20th Infantry Regiment, ran wild in My Lai. They did not find any Viet Cong soldiers. However, by the end of the day, they had killed between 347 and 504 unarmed Vietnamese women, children, and old men. They also raped 20 women and girls, some as young as 12 years old, and they burned down the village. This was easily the worst war crime committed by American forces in Southeast Asia. There were other incidents of war crimes committed by Americans in the Vietnam War, but My Lai was the worst. But I want to make clear that such atrocities were the exception and not the rule. The vast majority of American and Allied military personnel in Vietnam acted honorably. And of course, there were plenty of atrocities and war crimes committed by the Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese. Here's just one infamous example. During the Tet Offensive in the city of Hue, communist forces killed approximately 2,500 local civilians. And some were buried alive because they were deemed enemies of the people. Unfortunately, there are war crimes in every war. But Americans weren't focusing on atrocities by the communists. We're Americans. We're supposed to be the good guys. We don't accept, but we do expect, war crimes by the enemy, but not by our own military personnel. Although this incident occurred on March 16, 1968, it did not become known to the American public until a year and a half later. Rumors of the My Lai Massacre spread throughout the American military. At first, high-ranking officers 
covered up the situation. But eventually, it became so widely known that a full-scale investigation was commenced. Eventually, 26 soldiers from Charlie Company were charged with criminal offenses, but there was only one conviction. Platoon leader, Lieutenant William Canley Jr., was found guilty of murder in 1971. Cali was given a life sentence. President Nixon changed Cali's sentence to house arrest, and Cali only served three and a half years of his sentence. On June 13, 1971, the New York Times began publishing the report of the Office of the Secretary of Defense Vietnam Task Force. Nobody remembers it by its official name. The report came to be known as the Pentagon Papers, and that's what everybody calls it today. In 1967, Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara ordered an extensive and thorough report of America's involvement in Vietnam. The Pentagon Papers was an enormous report of the history of the U.S. involvement in Vietnam from 1945 to 1967. The Pentagon Papers showed that the U.S. government covered up a lot of true information about the Vietnam War. It was very unfavorable to U.S. policy and demonstrated that the Johnson administration had systematically lied not only to the public, but also to Congress about the war. It was soon discovered that the person who leaked the Pentagon Papers to the New York Times, along with other newspapers, as well as some members of Congress, was a former employee of the Pentagon and the Rand Corporation named Daniel Ellsberg. Overall, I understand the protesters from the 1960s and early 1970s against the Vietnam War. Vietnam was a mistake and the U.S. should not have been involved in that war. But one thing I never accepted was the treatment of American military personnel by the demonstrators. As the war dragged on and the animosity throughout the United States increased, soldiers, Marines, airmen, and sailors in uniform were often attacked in public. People sometimes spit on them. They called them vile names, including baby killers. I never understood this. If you were angry at Lyndon Johnson, Richard Nixon, and the American government for lying to the American public while carrying on a war which you thought was unjust, fine, I totally get it. But why would you take it out on the combat soldiers and other military personnel who had to bear the brunt of the insane situation in Southeast Asia? People were often carrying signs saying, bring our boys home. Presumably, this meant that you pitied these men who endured the hell of Vietnam. I have never been in the military, but I have great respect and appreciate those who have served our country. Even if you disagree with the United States being involved in a particular military action, your animosity should be directed at the people in the government and the hierarchy of the military who are making such poor decisions. Not the soldiers, marines, airmen, and sailors who risked their lives and witnessed horrors that most of us could not possibly imagine and that they would have nightmares about for the rest of their lives. How could you spit on these people and call them baby killers? If you truly believe that Vietnam was an unjust war and the United States should not have been involved, then you should have felt sorry and had utter compassion for those who had to bear the hardships of those terrible policy decisions. Now let's talk about the peace treaty and the American withdrawal from Vietnam. After years of negotiations and secret talks, the Paris Peace Accords were finally signed on January 27, 1973. This treaty was signed by representatives from the US, the government of South Vietnam, the government of North Vietnam, and the Viet Cong. Lyndon Johnson died on January 22, 1973. That meant that he died 
five days before the signing of the peace treaty, which ended Americans' involvement in Vietnam. Here are the major terms of that peace treaty. Number one, a ceasefire throughout Vietnam was in effect as of January 27, 1973. Number two, the withdrawal of all U.S. and allied military forces within 60 days. Of course, that did not count the Arvin. Number three, the return of all prisoners of war within that same time frame. Number four, the removal of all mines from North Vietnamese ports by the U.S. Number five, all military forces would remain in their locations throughout South Vietnam. This meant that communist forces could remain where they were in South Vietnam. Number six, a National Council of National Reconciliation and Concord would be established to organize free elections in South Vietnam under international supervision. And number seven, Vietnam would be reunified on the basis of discussions and agreements between the North and the South without coercion or foreign interference. The day after the Paris Peace Accords were signed, President Nixon issued an executive order which ended the draft. Since January 1973, America has had an all-volunteer military. So that was it. Within 60 days, America was essentially out of Vietnam. 591 Americans who had been prisoners of war came home to the U.S. Was this a good peace treaty? It was certainly a good peace treaty for the communists. It was clear that they were going to be able to unite North and South under the government of Hanoi at some point in the not-too-distant future. For those same reasons, it was a bad peace treaty for the government of Saigon. So why did they sign it? They had to. The U.S. essentially told the South Vietnamese government that America was getting out whether the Saigon government agreed or not. But if the South Vietnamese would agree to the terms, then there was an unwritten promise of continued financial aid from the United States. What about America? Was this a good treaty for the US? That's not really the question. The important question was whether this was the best treaty the United States could get at that time. And the answer is yes. The American people would not tolerate further involvement in Vietnam. So the US got the two main things Americans wanted. Number one, American armed forces were withdrawn from Vietnam and the bleeding was finally stopped. Number two, American prisoners of war would be returned home. I think that it's the best deal America could get at that time. My complaint is that Nixon kept us in the war for four years after he took office, and I believe he could have gotten the same deal in 1969. Obviously, we will never know for certain, but it is difficult to believe that if the U.S. told the communists in 1969 that the United States was willing to withdraw and leave South Vietnam on its own on the one condition that we could have our POWs back, does anybody really believe that the leaders in Hanoi would have turned down that offer? Of course not. The communist leaders understood that once the vast American military left Vietnam, that the communists would eventually conquer South Vietnam and achieve their ultimate goal of uniting the country under the Hanoi government. So what happened to Vietnam after the American withdrawal? Everybody presumed that South Vietnam would not be able to stand on its own and that it was only a matter of time before the communists conquered the Saigon government. It took two years, but South Vietnam collapsed. During those two years, communist forces made more and more gains throughout South Vietnam. By the spring of 1975, America had a new president, Gerald Ford. This was because Richard Nixon had to resign in August 1974 over the Watergate scandal. 
Although the U.S. government knew that it was only a matter of time before the communists completed their conquest of South Vietnam, the U.S. was taken by surprise at the speed of the fall of Saigon. American officials always presumed that there would be sufficient time to remove all American personnel who were still in Saigon, mostly working in the embassy, along with the South Vietnamese citizens who had worked with the American government. As the NVA was conquering more and more of South Vietnam, the U.S. should have started the evacuation procedures. But the evacuation process was delayed by Graham Martin, the U.S. ambassador to South Vietnam. Ambassador Martin was apparently in denial that the end was near. In surprising military advances, communist forces shut down the airbase and seaport for Saigon. This left one alternative for the removal of Americans and some South Vietnamese allies. Helicopters. Helicopters ferried people from Saigon out to American naval ships in the South China Sea. On April 29, 1975, it was clear that the communists were about to overrun Saigon. Panicky South Vietnamese tried to get into the grounds of the U.S. Embassy to get on a helicopter and get out of Vietnam. Very few were allowed in and most were turned away. There's a good chance that you've seen one of the most iconic photos of the Vietnam War. It's a helicopter on top of a building with people lined up on a ladder and standing on a different part of the roof trying to get into that helicopter. There's a major misconception of that photograph. People always think that helicopter was on the roof of the American Embassy, but it's not true. That photograph shows a helicopter on top of an apartment building located at 22 Gia Long Street in Saigon. All Americans from the Embassy, as well as the Marines guarding the Embassy, got out safely. But thousands upon thousands of South Vietnamese who had supported and worked with the United States throughout the war were left behind. On April 30, 1975, Communist forces took over Saigon. The war was finally over. They renamed Saigon Ho Chi Minh City, and that's what it's called today. What happened to the South Vietnamese who were part of the Saigon government, or were part of the South Vietnam military, or had simply worked with the United States? Hundreds of thousands of these poor people were sent to re-education camps. That was a nice euphemism for prison camps. Prisoners were not released from these re-education camps until the people who ran the camps decided that the prisoners had been properly rehabilitated and re-educated as good communists who would be productive members of the communist society. And in case there was any doubt about the severity of the new government, from 1975 to 1995, approximately 3 million of the population of Vietnam fled the country. Most risked their lives to do so. Throughout this episode, I focused on the American viewpoint. That was the purpose of this episode. But this is not to diminish the losses by the Vietnamese. They suffered far greater losses than the Americans. We don't have accurate figures, but the number of deaths from Vietnamese north and south numbered in the millions. Here's a concise summary of the Vietnam War in numbers for the Americans. Between 1964 and 1973, approximately 2.7 million American military personnel served in Vietnam. During that same time period, the U.S. suffered over 153,000 non-fatal casualties, meaning wounded. And the number of official American fatalities in the Vietnam War is 58,220. 
That's it for today. Please subscribe to this podcast. Please like this and my other episodes. Reviews and ratings greatly help. Please tell your friends, relatives, and co-workers about History Analyzed. Check out my website, historyanalyzed.com, where you will find links to fun items for all the history geeks. Thank you for listening. Catch you next episode.